This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Gabe Lyons and Jim Daly. Gabe Lyons is the founder of Q. Jim Daly is president of Focus on the Family. I spoke with them on September 12, 2012, at a public event. We were at the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Good evening. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the public affairs school here at the University of Minnesota. I'd like to welcome all of you joining us here in the Coles Auditorium on the campus of the University of Minnesota, and all of you watching this live online or following live through our blogs. One Being is recording this uh, discussion for possible radio broadcast, and you'll be able to watch the video again at onbeing.com. We'll be taking your questions in the Q&A session. For those of you in the house, we'll be walking by in a bit to uh, pick uh, pick up your questions if you have them. For those of you online, please go to onbeing.org slash ccp and enter your question on our live blogging forum or via Twitter. Please use the hashtag ccp2012 and address it to at being tweets. It's helpful if you include your first name and the city or town where you are from. And yes, for those of you here, please feel free to tweet about the discussion or ask questions online. We just ask that you mute your mobile device so you don't embarrass yourself if it happens to go off. One more note, please, uh, uh, at the end of this program, because we are recording it, Please stay in your seats for an extra minute or so in case we have to recapture a few quick pieces for the broadcast. Now it's my great pleasure to welcome and introduce our host, Krista Tibbet. Uh, Krista is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times bestselling author. She's the creator and host of Public Radio's On Being. Joining Krista today are Jim Daly and Gabe Lyons. Mr. Daly is president of Focus on Family, a global Christian ministry dedicated to helping families thrive, and host of its daily broadcast heard by more than 2.9 million people each week. The show was honored as a 2012 Program of the Year by the National Religious Broadcasters. Mr. Daly's third book, Refocus, Living a Life that Reflects God's Heart, will be released in the fall. Gabe Lyons is author of The Next Christians, The Good News About the End of Christian America, He's also the founder of Q, a learning community that mobilizes Christians to advance the common good in society. Please welcome our welcome, pro- our wonderful program. So thank you to Larry, <clears throat> Larry Jacobs and Kate Cimino at, um, at the Humphrey School. We um, pulled this together pretty quickly in August. It was, we had a brainstorm, and we had to do it, and we made it happen. So it's very exciting, and I, I want to welcome all of you and everybody who's watching live um, in warm, dry places on this rainy evening in Minnesota, and also, of course, my staff from American Public Media for pulling this together. Um, we're going to speak up here among ourselves for about 50 minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions. I believe you will have had cards when you came in, and... Um, in about 40 minutes, I'll give you a signal that people will be picking those up 
and uh, and then we'll we'll open this up uh, t- to a larger conversation uh, at about seven seven o five. And I am also going to occasionally do a radio thing and identify the show for the air. So uh, I'm I'm, kind of, I have, I'm just practicing at this. This is something new for me. Um, something else that's new for me is that I. Uh, joined, I don't know if you, how you say, I joined Twitter this week. I can hardly believe it. I can't believe I'm saying that. I started tweeting about three days ago. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've made a lot of fun of Twitter, and obviously there are a lot of superficial things you can say in 140 characters. But I'm quite impressed as well by the substance that you can find there. And when I was tweeting uh, at Krista Tippett, about this conversation and this series, I got a tweet back from someone named Todd Charles Davis, who is a disabled um, vet. And he wrote, I have seen the horrors of war. There are no words to describe it. To come home to hateful discourse is appalling. And that, uh, in less than 140 characters, uh, made me feel like it's very good and right that we're gathering here to have this conversation. I'm incredibly grateful to Jim and Gabe for, for rearranging their very packed schedules to come to this. Um, I, I wanted both of them. They were exactly the people I wanted. Um, and I think that, um, that those words from my Twitter friend, um, the veteran, resonate because um, many of us, I'm speaking for myself as well, no longer feel quite at home in our own political process, in our own political dialogue our own discourse, um, at least in how we disagree and at the same time how we know ourselves to be in need of understanding those who are different from us, uh, to have a chance to be heard with those different others, and to engage and be in, feel that we are in some kind of relationship, in some kind of common life. And as I said to Jim and Gabe, um, as I spoke to them about being part of this, Something I've been very aware of in recent election seasons is how religious people, religious voices and perspectives, Christians in particular, evangelicals in particular, um, get consigned, discussed in very narrow terms as a voting block. And yet what we're talking about here is a vast swath of human beings. Um, Evangelicalism is a vast swath of human beings, a a diverse swath of human beings, of Americans. And also, it's a place in American culture that has really been very dynamic and rapidly evolving in in the last 30 to 40 years and in the last decade. So very quick history lesson. About a century ago, the people we now know as evangelicals really withdrew from public life and political life. Um, this voice reemerged in American public life in the last 30, 40 years, most vigorously represented by figures like Jerry Falwell, whose church Gabe Lyons attended in his childhood, and James Dobson, who preceded uh, Jim Daly as the founding president of Focus on the Family. Um, And then in the past decade, I think, behind the scenes and below the radar of sound bites and culture wars, there's been a real ongoing self-searching reassessment by emerging leaders in this world of evangelical Christianity. I think that's a story that hasn't really been told, and I think we're going to experience it tonight. Um, Gabe Lyons founded his fascinating learning community, Q, 
out of his experience as part of a generation of young Christians who who ex- ex- expressed themselves as, selves as disheartened by the harsh and very politicized associations that the word Christian had come to hold in many years. And since Jim Daly has become president of what, as I was doing this research, I routinely found this referred to as a right-wing evangelical powerhouse. <laughs> um, yes. He, he's also been on a private and public journey, uh, you know, asking what the strategy of intense political engagement has affected. And also, I really hear you asking how to be, at one and the same time, convicted and truthful and gracious and loving, right? How to balance your words, your rhetoric, your fervor for truth with these tenets of your faith. So I want to start with you, Jim. Um, and I have questions for each of you, and I'm happy for you to jump in and speak to each other as well. We've agreed to bail each other out. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. It's a hidden pack. <laughs> so, Jim, um, you know, to say that your childhood was difficult is really hmm. an understatement. Uh, both of your parents were alcoholic. They divorced when you were very young. Your mother died when you were nine. Your father when you were 12. Um, (laughs) It can't be a stretch to suggest that if someone had told you at the age of 12 or 15 that you would one day head an organization called Focus on the Family, it would have seemed a bit unimaginable. Walking down the hall with Don Hodel, who came in to be the temporary president of Focus on the Family, really helping Dr. Dobson in the initial transition... And he turned to me and said, you know, we think you're the guy. I, I did, I laughed. I said, there's no way. And, you know, my childhood, I think there's a beautiful scripture that says God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. And that's what I was. I mean, I did not come from a healthy home. I came from a really dysfunctional home. And the irony, the humor of it, you know, the, the scripture talks about being made in God's image. I, this aspect of God, I, I want to hear his belly laugh because we have a sense of humor. And I think that's God. <laughs> and so when I thought about having just about every family type, I lived in just about every family type. I had a normal dysfunctional mom and dad. <laughs> and then I had a single parent mom that really worked hard. I was born in the 60s. She worked three jobs at times to take care of five kids. Then my mom remarried a really difficult stepfather, Hank. I nicknamed him, and when I was eight, I nicknamed him Hank the Tank. He was an (laughs) ex-military drill sergeant. And uh, they were married about a year and a half, and then my mom died of cancer, and Hank walked out the door the day of her funeral. I mean, I remember to this day him just leaving the house. And then we moved into foster care, so I had that experience. And then I moved back with my biological father, and uh, he died within a year. And then I lived uh, during junior high and high school with my brother, who was only seven years older than me. I used to say, what time do you want me to come home Friday night after the football game? He'd say, well, I'll try to get home by 2 or 3 in the morning. I remember thinking, I'll try to stay out that late. <laughs> but it is a very different background than Dr. Dobson. He came, you know, born in the 30s and had a loving mother and father. But when I struggled with that, it was more like, God, what I felt God saying in my heart is that represents so much more of the culture today. And when I speak about it, so many teens and college-age kids, they've lived a portion of that life. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's where I connect, and that's what I'm enjoying, is being, being there to let people know you can overcome these things. Right, right. And it, to me, it seems that it, I, I read about you struggling with whether 
whether someone who didn't have that storybook wonderful family. But in, in you know, I think it does equip you actually very well for the difficulties that we know families have. Well, and I, I think it gets to the core of one of the issues within the church, within the Christian church, and that is we try to project perfection as opposed to brokenness. Mm-hmm. And it's, one of the, it's a fundamental flaw. I mean, the Lord came to save us. Uh, and he said very specifically, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the broken. And guess what? I mean, in my theology, we're all broken people for all kinds of reasons. So mm. I want to represent that. I am not perfect. I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father. I try hard, but uh, just ask my wife and my two boys. Um, but I, I want to do the best I can do. And Gabe, um, you grew up in Virginia, and you went to Jerry Falwell's church, yep. and you went to Liberty University. Yep. Mm-hmm. I, uh, my whole experience growing up in a small town, Lynchburg, Virginia, um, was going to the church, going to the Christian school. I went on to Liberty University. So until I was about age 22, I had pretty sufficiently grown up in what I now would describe as a bubble of kind of evangelical Christianity. Um, and it's not to say that was a bad bubble. I mm-hmm. had amazing experiences, wouldn't really change anything about it. Um, amazing family, amazing friends, um, and a grandmother who to this day at 80 eight still prays for me every day. So I, I um, am privileged to kind of have that, that heritage. Um, but it was when I was 22, graduated from college, moved to San Diego to kind of begin my career and my life uh, that I was, it was a, a really cold awakening to realize how much of a bubble I had grown up mm. in and how much of the rest of the world not only pretty much hated this bubble that I had grown up in um, and despised it, but also could care less about the things I believed, about what had really shaped who I was and how I viewed the world. Um, and there was a huge adjustment that I had to go through over those next few years to kind of recalibrate to how do you relate to people who, who really don't respect your faith and, and have a lot of um, good reasons for why they don't respect your faith uh, that they're that they're bringing at you all the time, and so that recalibration for me was a key part of my journey and story to to lead to you know the journey that I'm on today. And then it seems to me that the way you approached your curiosity about that and and your confusion about that was really to face it head on. You ended up embarking on this study, which resulted in a book uh, called Unchristian, which was which really laid out. Um, well, what were the five top words? Yeah, I mean, people, so some... <laughs> 16 to 29 year olds, the five top words they associated with the word Christian was anti homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, too political, and boring. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful bad, adjectives, huh? huh? Yeah. So uh, I, that was my cold awakening was, wow, mm-hmm. this is who I am to the rest of the world. This is, this is who our faith represents, this is who they perceive Jesus to be. These are the things they believe Jesus cares about. This is the way they believe Jesus thinks we ought to be operating in the world. Um, and it was embarrassing. I was ashamed to call myself Christian. I, I didn't want to make that pronouncement about myself because I knew what it meant to people. And I knew it wasn't true of what it meant to follow Jesus. Right. But I, I mean, but you I, did, that, wasn't really, that wasn't your experience, um, but it was your experience of how people perceived this, this faith that still meant a great deal to you. Yeah, that well, still meant everything I, well, to you. Well, I, I will say, as a Christian growing up, I mean, I, I think I had become a pretty judgmental Christian. I mean, definitely my view of the world was those who disagree with my point of view are wrong. I've got it all figured out. A very self-righteousness about 
what I f- believed, uh, and, and all of that had to be broken down in me. I mean, there was a moment of just total repentance when I recognized how much I was a part of the problem. And I think that's, that's a key part for so many of my generation is, is recognizing and acknowledging how much we have contributed to the pain that people feel in American culture when they think about the church, when they think about Christians, and to own that and mm-hmm. to acknowledge it, and then to let the Spirit of God transform us to be something different, to be much more like who I think Jesus intended us to be, and then, and then let life play out from there. And was your decision to found to create Q, did that grow out of this study and what you were learning, both about yeah. yourself and, and, and how other people thought of this? Yeah, I think there was a deep conviction for me that, that this is not who Jesus is, mm-hmm. the, the judgmental, anti-homosexual, um, hypocritical, too political. I mean, none of these things represented the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the New Testament that we all know of. I mean, when you do other research surveys, you find that most of America respects Jesus. They think Jesus is a pretty great um, teacher, a great rabbi, a great person, um, depending on their point of view. But in general, they don't have the same feelings about Jesus. And so it became really important to me that, that um, I bring together people who were thinking similarly as I was thinking about this and start to create something that would give voice to Christians who were not satisfied with this being the reputation of Jesus. And, and so Q became an, an event that we do once a year. It became uh, online. QIdeas.org is our website where we constantly have articles and content that we're trying to put out that start to give people maybe a bigger picture of how Christians are thinking about everything in the world today. And it seems to me you're also giving Christians a bigger picture of everything that's happening in the world. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, te- it's a TED-like gathering where yeah. you bring people who are in science and the arts and politics. I want, I want you to describe what happens in Q. I want to say, I've been following it for a long time. Um, really fascinated. It's a, it's a fantastic project. And I always wondered what the Q stood for. And I thought it probably stood for a Q, which is this in New Testament studies, it's a lost source of, of the Gospels. And then at a stretch, I thought maybe it was the great supernatural character in Star Trek, The Next Generation. <laughs> that's that's where I was going. That was just me. But then I learned it stands for questions, which yeah. is more simple, but also very refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think um, I'd realized that for too long we'd had all the answers to everybody's problems and to even the questions nobody was asking. And we really needed to create an environment where leaders could come together and wrestle with questions, not necessarily all come away with the same answers, but have, a, have space where they could hear presentations, not just from Christians, but from the experts on the topics facing our culture, our cities, our world, our neighborhood, um, our international crises. And so Q became a platform where we do short talks, nine-minute talks, three-minute talks, 18-minute talks to a group of 700, 800 leaders who are leading everything from churches to businesses, entrepreneurs, artists, people in the media, um, but who care about trying to wrestle with what, is, what does it mean for us to wrestle with the gospel and how that should show up and ought to show up in a 2012 world. Mm. Um, and so Q becomes a place where it's not just presentations, but conversations around the table. And what we're finding now after six Qs, um, and having done this for six years, mm-hmm. that, that people are leaving and going back into their communities and doing things differently and embodying a different way of being Christian than many of their neighbors maybe had ever experienced. And it's been, it, it seems to have been refreshing not only for them but for their communities. And you say that the word that's absolutely critical for you or anybody trying to understand this is restore, restoration, yeah. restore. What, what, what does that word hold for you? Well, I use the term restores because I think it just gives us a picture. I mean, m- most of us have, have gone through the experience of taking something old that was 
broken down and, and the hard work of trying to get it back to what its original design was. And I think that best describes how Christians are thinking today. They're, they're looking at a world that has tons of brokenness, not only in their own lives, but even in society and, and in our structures and our business systems and our governments um, all around us. And, and we're part of those problems, but they're, they have an attitude about it that says, look, Part of what God's mission in the world is, is to renew all things. I mean, Christ tells us this, that he's going to make all things new. Well, we're pretty excited that we get to be a part of partnering with people, not who all agree with us, but have different beliefs or no belief at all to say, look, we're part of the mission of God to see things renewed, to see things broken down, restored, to see um, school systems that are broken down, restored, to see new programs that need to be started that help children who are suffering or children who are in the case of how Jim grew up, um, to have programs, to be adopted, to have opportunities to have moments where they can actually experience the love of Jesus, but also what it really means to be human. And so restoring to me means that. We're getting back to kind of the basics of what is the design to be human? And we need to embody that. We need to live that and express that. And I think it's a contagious thing when people experience it. And, and I think also what seems important is you're, you're talking about Christian engagement with public life as something much bigger than political life. Yeah. So it's a whole range of subjects and issues and fields. Is well, that-, that was one of the things our research in the book on Christian uncovered. Three out of four 16 to 29-year-olds identified Christianity as being too political and very identified with the religious right. I mean, that was one of the big criticisms. And, and I think um, taking away from that, there's many of us now today who, who say, no, we have to be involved in politics. We can't completely back out of one very big sphere of our society. But yet there's so many other places where we're supposed to be at work. And I think there's new energy in this next generation of millennials, Generation X, to say, look, if I'm experienced as an artist or somebody in media or a journalist, I'm going to go pursue that path. And I'm not just going to do it for Christians. I'm going to go do it in every corner of the world where, where I'm asked or invited to do that. And I think that's giving kind of new hope to people that to be a first-class Christian is, is no longer a concept that you have to go become a pastor or go be involved mm-hmm. in politics, but that we can do that right where we live, right in our neighborhoods, right in our industries, right where, where we're planted. Mm-hmm. So your word is restore, and Jim, your word is refocus. <laughs> you have a book coming out right now, right? It's on the presses as we speak, soon. Yes, yeah. Um, what is what does that word hold for you? Well, I think for me, it's not you know, it's not looking back and and uh, being sour or, or doubting that strategy. You know, I wasn't born in the '30s. A lot of those figures you talk about, Jerry Falwell, Dr. Dobson, they're born in the '30s, '40s. They lived in a different country than we live in today. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values were commonly agreed upon. I mean, this is what we do and. And generally, the culture embraced those things. And to have those things slip away, I can understand in part why they engaged vigorously in that area. So it's not to recriminate that. But when, when you look at the way forward, and we talked earlier about the soldier that tweeted you, mm-hmm. I agree. What I'm saddened by is the fact that we cannot find a way to sit down to talk. And that really grieves my heart. Because when you look at the... Uh, example that Jesus was in the New Testament when he engaged the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well or you know they made actually they said of him that he was a friend of sinners <laughs> as if that were horrible um, I think the church we need to be willing to engage people to talk with them about what we perceive to be this life and what it's about and if we're just building a fortress we're failing at the very call of Christianity. So in that context, refocus for me is, 
is really finding a way that's more New Testament rooted that, um, you know, we, we speak kindly, we speak gently to the world. I think one of the mistakes we're, that we've made is we tend to speak harshly toward the world and gently toward our own. <laughs> and it's not what the scripture teaches, you know, let's hold each other accountable uh-huh. as Christians and as believers. But when we're engaging the world, let's show compassion. Um, I've come to the conclusion, I don't know a single Christian that's actually been emotionally beaten into the kingdom of God. You know, you better do this. Or, you know, there's two ways. One is the old Bill Bright way, which is if you died tonight, you know where you would go. That's fear. <laughs> I mean, that, right. that's fair. Okay, we believe that. The other is Romans, the book of Romans in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, don't you know, basically the paraphrase, that it's the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. We've got to remember that. And boy, if God's willing to show kindness to people that maybe don't even believe in him or are antagonistic toward him, can we do any less? And that's, I think, the great failure. And that's the the focus of refocus. So, so in concrete terms, you know, what, how does this affect you? What does this change? Because I, I don't think that the, that the core values or the essential mission of focus on the family has shifted. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but, uh, or I don't know if you would say it that way, but, but, but yeah. tell me what this works in you. What is, what, what difference yeah. does that make? I think, I think the one thing that, that it does bring about in terms of change is just tone. Principles, we can't, we can't abandon those. I mean, as Christians, we want to follow those. We need to follow those. And those are some big issues, and we may talk about some of those tonight, whether that's marriage or life, whatever it might be. But the irony is when I've engaged people that don't agree with me, as long as I'm sincere and respectful, we can have a discussion. Um, I, and I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of fear that I've seen in the hearts of Christians. And that is exactly opposite of what we as the Christian community should be communicating. It should be, there should be a confidence and a peace, even if you want to kill me. I mean, that's pretty bold, but that's the first, second, third century Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we talk about what is it doing in my life that way, I, I want to have the right tone so that I can speak to people about what I believe at the core of my heart, that God is who he is, and he's given us the owner man, owner's manual to live our life. And I want to encourage people to at least read it. I mean, at least before you fight me, just read it and see if anything resonates with you. So, um, I mean, you know, what I said a minute ago is maybe not true. You, 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 have, I, I, you have evolved things in some ways, right? I mean, you, for example, I see you looking at... Um, Focus on the family has has been working to overturn Roe versus Wade. Has been in the forefront of that. But but I see you also saying that hasn't happened, and uh, wanting to be engaged with people on the other side of that politically to say how do we how do we save lives? How do we care mm-hmm. for children? You're working on things like um, foster care, which is a system that you know personally. I mean, is is that? Is that also growing out of, you know, because when you say tone, yeah. that might just be the surface, but I, I sense that it's, it's much deeper than that. No, I appreciate that. I think that's true. I, you know, I know people that have good hearts and good intentions that don't agree with me in these areas. Um, and I think that is a majority of people. I think that when you look at the issue of, of abortion in this country, more than 50% now consider it immoral, that we need to do better. 
And I think it would be wonderful if we could find solutions, although there is a choice, can we choose life more often? And I'm willing to talk to people, and I've, I've had meetings uh, behind the scenes with people that, that would not agree with us on the life position. But they acknowledge that that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And if we can find a way to uh, allow more children to come into this world, I think everybody wins. And I'm willing to sacrifice our reputation for the sake of those kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that's worthy. There's an interesting piece in... Uh the Colorado Springs Independent. Uh, I think Colorado Springs is an interesting place, it is. isn't it? Have you been there a few times? I haven't, but it has all these. I have all these different associations with Colorado Springs, from yoga capital of the world to focus on the family, and they don't quite go together. Um, so, I mean, this 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 little um, publication had actually given you or focus on the family something called a shame award. So, had been very critical. You've of done your on research. The Yes, I have. And then there's this interesting piece that that comes out at some point because you just you engaged, right? You you did you accept the invitation to the Shame Award? Well, it was funny, <laughs> actually. Gary Schneeberger, to his credit, he's here in the audience tonight. So Gary came to me and said, "You know, I think I think we should. I think we should accept the award." And I said, "I think you're right." And so they the 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 problem it created for them is they had over the years nobody had ever shown up to accept this award (laughs) (laughs) so it kind of put them a little on their heels they weren't even looking for your rsvp (laughs) but you know i've got to say john weiss who is the owner of the independent is Uh a classic example of what we're talking about Um, he's a berkeley harvard guy worked on henry waxman's campaign you know he would be self-described as a, a pretty strong liberal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember the first time we sat and talked, he said, uh, he said about our orphan care work, he said, I never knew anything that good would come out of focus on the family. And I said, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're committed to, to completely eliminating those waiting lists, right? Or for foster care. Well, or, that would be a goal. Or is that something I, else? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's one it's of our really goals. It's really practical. In, in Colorado, we began working on, I think we had 850 kids in the foster care system available for adoption. And if you know church history, that is one of the things the early church engaged. Uh, we, we were known for taking care of the orphan. And it was, it's in part what the early church was built upon. And so for us in this country, with all that we have, uh, particularly uh, the Christian community, to be able to engage that. So over a couple of years, we were able to get that number down from 850 kids waiting to about 300. And that was the most progress that had been made on that issue in the state for a long time. So that's why John wanted to meet with me, mm-hmm. and that's why he said, <laughs> I didn't know anything that good would come out of focus. <laughs> but we were able to talk about that, and he just had a real um, you know, a, a media perspective on this. He thought 90% of our budget was spent on politics and 10% on marriage and family. It's exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. We probably spent about 7% of our budget on social issues and 93% on counseling. Last year alone, 1.4 million marriages helped or saved. We did 64,000 counseling sessions over the phone. So we're trying to do what we believe at the core is one of the most important things for this country, and that is to keep families together. And if we can do that, we'll be more successful. So John, it just evolved into a wonderful relationship. And I remember what he said to me. He said, for 17 years, we've been carpet bombing you. Uh, We're going to wipe the slate clean and start writing more favorable articles. So... I was thankfully finally admitted well, so, that. So here's what he wrote. He wrote, he wrote, here's something you need to know. This is to his readers. 
The Independent is involved in a community-based partnership with Focus. No, hell has not frozen over. (laughs) Oh, it's not him, but here's what happened. Our publisher, John Weiss, realized that there was at least one issue on which Focus and the Indie can agree. We want all kids to grow up in a loving home. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate John. I think John's got a great heart. And once again, it's that example where we can come together. And uh, with the recent fires we had this summer in Colorado, 347 homes burnt down, uh, we were able to to call John and say, would you like to co-sponsor an event? And I think that event in total raised about a million dollars for those victims. But the news of it was focus on the family and the independent working together. (laughs) So, you know, I think we can do some things to come together. That's the point. And I just jump in there. I mean, I think to the point of these conversations we're having tonight, and I Mm -hmm. commend you and your team for hosting it, it, this is how we break down the problems I think we're all feeling and experiencing is when we disagree with people to recognize that labels are not an appropriate way to try to identify people, that, that we need to come together, meet face to face, talk to those who have a challenge with us, try to hear one another out. And it's amazing yeah. once you just sit down for five minutes, how much you really do find common ground, find that the person you had perceived to be a certain way was not. And I, and I think you, you know, you're, you're speaking to the fear-based mentality that drives not yeah. just Christians, but a lot of our culture. Right. Um, politicians use it. Media uses it. It's entertaining. But we really try to stir up fear. And we, and we try to make people afraid of, of an imagined future that right. really isn't true, that nobody's really pursuing. And, and we do it because it's good ratings, it raises money, it, it engenders a spirit behind you and the momentum behind a crowd to, to be behind you and for you. And I think that's, you know, slowly we're going to have to break that down. It's going to take more conversations like this, but, but examples like I think what Jim described with John. Right. You know, I think a lot about a conversation I had with a, uh, he's actually a global conflict resolution. He's a, he's a mediator. He's Mennonite which is a great, they have a, this great tradition of peacemaking. And he talked about how um, we, we tend these days to think about social change coming in terms of mass movements. But in fact, he said movements, mass movements, critical mass, uh, often helps, helps societies move beyond some injustice, but it doesn't point the way forward. And that where transformative change happens that, re- that really changes the way people live and makes that conflict uh, unimaginable in the future it's not critical mass but critical yeast mm. and it's about unlikely groups of people coming together and you know that's a story and I, I, I think to hold on to that because we do think so much in terms of numbers um, I think this is critical yeast right mm. and we can all do it that's the exciting thing it's immediately yeah. available um, you know Gabe I want to talk about um, your some of the interesting way you have talked about another one of these hot button issues um, which is gay marriage. Um, you know, you talk about internal discussions among younger evangelicals and a question how, and that the question gets framed like this, how to remain biblically faithful yet credible in a post-Christian culture. How can Christians who care deeply about traditional marriage, and would you describe yourself that way, yeah. um, move forward in this new era? And, um, and so you lay that out there, and you also said this pretty provocative thing. Um, if a recent New York law, this was 
I don't know, 2011, becomes the impetus for Christians to stop reacting and start leading uh, in these ways. Um, in ter- and in, in these ways was really working on what you say, what we can control, the health of heterosexual marriage, of families, of creating community for marriages in trouble, of su- supporting healthy sexuality. You said, um, if this kind of law becomes the impetus for Christians to start leading in these ways, it may be the best thing that's happened to traditional marriage in more than a generation. Yeah. I mean, I think we all obviously have heard so many conversations about marriage, and the, it's constantly framed as this debate about gay marriage and, and the constant argument from the gay community is, but look at your own marriages. Why are you worrying about us getting married when your own marriages are falling apart? And I think too many times conservatives and Christians don't realize even the damage that Ronald Reagan did to marriage um, in implementing no-fault divorce in California. I mean, this was a huge thing that challenged marriage many, many years ago that we now are bearing the fruit of in our society, and so many families broken apart, um, so many kids being ripped apart from from one parent or the other and going through this. Um, And we, we have to look back to our own marriages, to our own communities, to our own faith communities, and say, what are we doing about marriage amongst ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged to think about pastors I, I'm talking to now who, who are thinking about how do we raise the level of commitment in our marriage and have more covenant marriages taking place within our communities where it goes beyond even what the state might require, but that challenges couples to, to commit to not doing a no-fault divorce, to seeking two years' worth of counseling before they would get a divorce, and to do things where the Christian energy is propelled forward in making our own marriage is healthier, um, requiring people that are going to be a part of a church to once a year participate in some kind of a marriage retreat. I mean, little practical steps that we can be taking that puts the emphasis back on our own marriages and back on families, um, I think, is, is critical. Hmm. Um, I'm going to do my radio thing. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, the next Christian's Jim Daly is president of Focus on the Family, and Gabe Lyons is founder of Q, which stands for Questions. It's an online space and a gathering with ideas for the church's future role in society. Um, you both in your books, and I, I do want to acknowledge this, Gabe, the, the phrase, the title, Next Christians, is the title of one of your books. Um, and I just thought it was an evocative phrase for our discussion. Um, both of you tell stories of pivotal encounters you've had. And I think they both are in this category of unlikely, unlikely encounters. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we really describe them as spiritual high points. And um, with, of, of an encounter with people who I think outsiders would not associate your movement with embracing. And Jim, the story that you tell in your new book um, is with a prominent gay activist, you don't name this unnamed. person. <laughs> unnamed. That's right. Unnamed. Yeah, on purpose. Uh, yeah. Um, and you, it, it was a, a conversation that was planned, and and I think you prayed over, and it finally happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It. Uh, you know, for months, actually, this this gentleman's name was on my heart, and I kept moving his phone number around my desk. A bit embarrassing. And we have a woman that comes in to clean the offices, and she kept moving the number next to my phone. <laughs> and I took that as a sign. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, we ended up talking and, and agreeing that we'd meet at Starbucks and uh, no note takers, just the two of us. And it was profound. I mean, again, to Gabe's point, when you can sit down and actually just be human with each other and talk, it's amazing 
what comes out of that. And, you know, we talked about the differences, and there are plenty, and we all know them. But at the end, I, I remember I just said to him, I said, I think the reason I felt compelled to call you and meet with you is just to let you know I know God loves you as much as he loves me. And he started to cry. And then I said, what do I do now? But, but it was human. Um, there was, he told me a beautiful story about being raised in a Catholic family and his dad being 85, going to Mass every day. And two weeks prior to our meeting, he was with his dad, and, and uh, the priest was preaching against homosexuality. And his dad just reached over and took his hand and said, I'm, I'm so glad you're here with me today. And I started to cry because it's just the love of a father's heart. And to me, that's the picture of God. Um, God is in our corner no matter what is going on in our lives, whether you're straight, gay, whatever. And, uh, and that, that was just one of the high points. And, but I do remember coming back to focus, and I had a colleague who stopped me and said, how could you meet with that man? That'll be an embarrassment. And I got to tell you, that was one of the low points of my time at Focus. And I think that, in a nutshell, describes what Gabe and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have a heart for people, then you don't have the heart of God. And that encounter didn't bring either one of you to a different place on the issue. No, no. So what? Oh, it's a big issue. <laughs> you yeah, want it me is. to go further, do you? I'm just, I'm no. just, tr- but you know, we're so results oriented in this Aren't culture, we? right? Yeah. So, and I think there, there is a result clearly, but, but how, how do you, how do you talk about this? Um, yeah. I mean, it's difficult. This is probably one of the most difficult topics in the culture today. And, uh, and it is hard to talk about because labels fly, bigot, homophobe, all those things. It breaks my heart in the really good book on Christian that Gabe and David Kinnaman did all the research to have 93% of that age group, 16 to 29, say the first word you think of when you hear the word evangelical is homophobic. We've got to be honest with ourselves and say that's a problem. That's not the first word you should think of. And, uh, and so how do we not simply rebrand, that sounds too businessy, but how do we project God's heart? How do we restate, refocus, uh, restore uh, the message of the gospel? And again, to me, the message is clear. He was for all of us and for the sinner and hung out with the, the real <laughs> bad people and talked with them about their condition. And I think we've got to be more willing to do that. So when we get down to the same-sex issue, it is very volatile. We just believe, and it's very simple, that family, that the design, God's design and human sexuality is male and female, and that we will do harm. And I know that many in this room will say, can you be saying that? But we think there's there's harm in opening that Pandora's box. We know it exists. I think there's less energy about same-sex marriage today within the Christian community, certainly under, under 35. Mm-hmm. 65% of those under 35 in the Christian community will support same-sex marriage. If, we, if that is not changed, then that debate's pretty much over. But as we move forward, how can, how can we address these issues in a way that's constructive, that's helpful, that's not mean-spirited? And I, I gotta, I'll tell you, there is an apology in this, because I believe 
that the Christian community has not handled this well. There's a video on YouTube. It's a little boy in a church. And this angers me, to be quite honest. This little four- or five-year-old boy is singing a song in church, which is Romans 1, 26, 27, Ain't no homo gonna get into heaven. And the pastor on the platform is going, Yeah, boy! That's the problem. That's the problem. That is not the God that Gabe and I know. And uh, somehow we have got to address that. Mm-hmm. Gabe, there's this line you wrote. Um, the longer I live, the more I am inspired by the life of Jesus, the way he sat down with people who were unlike him. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to collect cards. This is running away from me. I'm not doing my job. So um, if you have a question, please write it down. And someone will come through the aisles in the next few minutes and get those. Um, so, Gabe, your uh, experience of sticking your neck out and also taking some heat for it was inviting Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf to a Q gathering where you interviewed him. And that was around the time when the Islamic Cultural Center in, New York, in Lower Manhattan was a really big heated issue. Um, t- tell me about that. And... Why, you know, that, again, yeah. I think that's... Uh, do you, wait, do you describe yourself as evangelical? I don't really use that word. I'm, I'm definitely positioned that way. That's how media would describe me right. because of how I grew up and what I believe. I just don't find those terms helpful. I find mm-hmm. most people don't even know what that means or the perception that they have of it certainly doesn't identify with who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to think of myself as a Christian, somebody who's trying to follow Jesus and not attach too many more labels to it. Okay. But so I think that even even for Q, um, that felt risky yeah. to people. Well, I think it, partly, you know, the media climate was, was certainly heated around that moment. And uh, what was important, again, with Q is we want to engage ideas and questions. And we want Christian leaders to understand better how to engage with our neighbors. I mean, this is the principal point of, of what Jesus tells us matters most next to loving him is to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was important for me, I live in lower Manhattan now, and to to be able to have a conversation with a neighbor that people actually um, really hated. I mean, a lot of Americans just thought that this cultural center, as he would describe it, should not exist, and, and that it was something that um, our laws and constitution basically should stamp out, and yet we all know and we, we understand religious liberty that there, there's really no case for that legally. Um, and so I wanted to have a conversation with a Muslim to say, Let's hear your views. I want you to sit in front of 700 Christian leaders, and I want to dialogue, and I want to better understand what you not just were proposing for for this um, cultural center, but more your views on this relationship between um, Muslims and Christians, because over 2,000 years it's been pretty bad. And as we look forward in our culture today, it's, it's likely headed towards... A, a really bad place. And you and, started that presentation by giving people a history of uh, the Crusades and um, colonialism and how even missionaries became caught up in political agendas. <clears throat> I mean, you, you really provided this large context for the Christian-Muslim relationship. Yeah, and, and because it's important. I mean, in, in, in this century, I think it's going to be critical that Islam go through the westernization of its faith in, in much the same way other faiths have had to go through that. And, and part of what I think Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf represents is somebody who's working so hard 
to help a vision of what it means to be Muslim exist in a culture, in a, in a free culture, um, that is very different than maybe what we've all tried to, to or, or maybe what we've been told is, is what it means to be Muslim. And so I felt it was important to give him not only a voice, but to be able to have this dialogue about where we agree, where we disagree, his views on Sharia law, his mm-hmm. views on Jesus. I mean, we, we got into to all of it. But I think um, the principal point for this group of Christians was to say, look, you're amongst people who really want to hear your perspective, who have Muslim neighbors, who believe that in our culture today you, you can't exist without having friends and co-workers and colleagues um, and people you really enjoy being with who have other faiths. Mm-hmm. And it's important for us to listen, to understand, because you don't really love your neighbor if you can't sit down and listen to them. Hmm. And, and tell me what was so meaningful for you about that experience. Well, for me, it was a friendship beginning. I mean, personally for me. I mean, I, I literally was with him yesterday hmm. um, on September 11th, and we were continuing our ongoing conversation about finding common ground and finding ways where, as he would put it, moderate voices within Islam are not heard. They're drowned out by extremists, and it's not just in the Islamic world, it's in the Christian world, that the extremists get the airtime, and they're the ones that that will fight harder for their position, whereas the moderates have a really hard time um, getting airtime. And so, uh, you know, for me it was meaningful to begin a friendship with a leader who, although we'll disagree on, on theological uh, positions and what we really believe to be true about the world and about God, we actually can find common ground and ways to work together and demonstrate that together. And so part of our relationship, he's introducing me to younger um, Muslims in New York that mm-hmm. I can get to know, where our friendships can start to flourish in a city um, where I think in, in many cases it's gotten beyond, maybe in some context in American culture, it's not where New York is. I mean, a lot of New Yorkers have good relationships with people of multiple faiths. I found as a Christian in New York, I can talk about my faith more um, openly than I could in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, mm. which might be shocking, oh. but people are more open-minded. They, they want to hear your story. There's opportunities to dialogue with respect because so many people are different. You, you can't exist without that. And I think there's something we all can learn from, from that experience. I think it's interesting um, how religious pluralism, the the fact, the reality of religious others um, in the 21st century is is really, it, it, it's not just a, an experience out there. It's a matter for Christian theology. I mean, do people talk about that in your circles? Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, Oz Guinness is somebody I, I respect deeply who's, um, somebody who's a historic, cultural historian who I've, I've learned much from as he kind of observes the American situation. But, I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things he always holds up is, is the beautiful thing about America is religious liberty. It's this cornerstone piece of our society that we, we need to be careful that we protect because mm-hmm. it's these differences that make America rich. It's the differences that allow us to debate the best ways forward in our communities and our neighborhoods. Um, but there, there is a lot of talk amongst the Christian community today, especially amongst uh, what we do with Q and people like Tim Keller, who's a, um, a pastor in New York City, has advanced these ideas. But that part of what we have to get back to is understanding the common good. I mean, it's a Catholic conception. Aquinas mm. really honed it. Um, but he really, this idea, and, and you heard it um, in the benedictions at the Democratic National Convention, Convention, this idea that we're supposed to care about the common good. And you're going to hear that word, I think, pop up a lot more as Christians think about their role in the world, that we have to care about 
all people, not just our own, not just those who believe like us, but for those who don't believe like us, for those who are disabled, for those who can't fend for themselves, who aren't necessarily productive members of society, that this has been consistently, as Jim pointed out, since the early church, what Christians have cared about. And you're finding, I think, we're trying to get back to some of these basics of loving people, of caring for people, of being kind and compassionate, and from there, letting the perception of what it means to be Christian play itself out, because we can't control that. But what we can control are our actions and how we're choosing to engage in, in a new moment. I, I love that phrase, the common good. I use it a lot. I loved seeing it come up in your writing. Um, I think that that's the kind of language and reality a lot of us are hungering for. Um, you also used a phrase, you, you wrote about a discussion you had with Chuck Colson, who, who just died n- mm-hmm. not that long ago. And he, he also moved a little farther to the idea of common grace, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that was so interesting. I, I wrote that down, that grace spilling over into non-believers as well as believers. And, you know, again, it's, I don't know, Chuck Colson is very much associated with a really conservative and politically aggressive at times uh, agenda. But people um, don't hear about that kind of language and sensibility in well, someone I, like him. Well, I was impacted when I read his book, How Now Shall We Live? It changed my life back um, in 1999 because I started to understand some concepts, again, in the bubble I'd grown up in I'd never heard. And one of those was common grace, this mm-hmm. sense that God's at work in the world um, and, that, and that he's at work for people who don't believe in him. He's at work. He's holding back the evil that would otherwise overwhelm his creation. Um, and that we see these beautiful pieces of common grace expressed in art, in our communities, in our cities, in architecture, in beauty, in fashion. We, we see it in all these different places showing up. And it's really the work of God that's allowing that to come forward. And that um, this grace doesn't just extend to those who believe in God. It extends to every human being. Because, you know, once again, we've got to remember the Christian faith isn't just one, to Christians at least, it's not just one religion competing with a bunch of other religions. We believe this is an account of human flourishing that is the account. It's the way to live. It's the way God designed us to live. And I think that then starts to play out as we look at the world, as we look at art, as we look at theater, as we look at media, every single corner of this world. And the reality of religious otherness, which is kind of mysterious in that picture. Yeah, it is. Um, Jim, you said somewhere, policy is important, but Jesus is more important. Yeah, that's the Washington Post. Yeah, right. It was the Washington Post. I think you were in a little trouble there. Probably. <laughs> um, what but you, it's true. I mean, is, I think. What does that mean when you say? To that? me, it means replacing is the Christian community replacing too much of an emphasis on a political solution, and as opposed to changing hearts in the culture, which then downstream would improve from our perspective the political sphere. So I, I think it's an error that's been made since Constantine and the fact that we put so much trust and hope in a political solution. It's important to be engaged. When I say that to Christian audiences, what they hear me saying is, hey, I'm capitulating, I'm backing up, I don't like being in this. That's not what I'm saying. It, like Gabe said, we stand in that, in that arena, hopefully, and we deliver a lucid argument for the things that we believe. Um, but the way in which we do that is so critical. And if we're just conservative versus liberal, um, we're missing the point. And that's what Chuck Colson taught me as a mentor, is that uh, what these are transcendent truths. I would hope that both Democrats and Republicans, it doesn't matter what letters behind your name, that when it comes to the idea of life, that although Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, wouldn't it be better if we could choose life more often for these kids? I, I think so. And I've met a lot of people 
with a D behind their name that actually agree with that. And so now, how do we go about doing that? Um, that's what I'm excited about. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being. Today, the next Christians. I'm in a public discussion with Focus on the Family president, Jim Daly, and Q founder, Gabe Lyons. Are we ready to do some questions? Okay. I'm going to invite Larry Jacobs to the microphone, who is... Larry, what is your title? I should know this. You are the head of the... Oh, no, you're not. Well, he, he's the I, main used, guy. It, it used to be the Humphrey Institute, but now it's the Humphrey School. Is there anything that the world could say that would convince you to change your viewpoint or rethink your theology? The yeah, I mean to rethink a viewpoint that's one thing to rethink your theology is quite a different thing. And I think, you know, those are where the traditions of the church are important to the Christian. I mean, we can't let 2000 years of Christian history just be shifting with the cultural mores. That's been the beauty of Christianity. It's held together. It's, it's informed the culture that it's in over these past 2,000 years, whether that's China or the Middle East or the new, uh, the new frontier of America. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's the beauty of Christianity. It can, it can morph not on its principle but how it's expressed. And I think that's what we're going through right now. I think that's the difference between the older generation, what you see in Gabe and and the younger generation. It's how do we communicate the heart of Christ in a, in a way that people can hear it. And so I understand that. One of the difficulties that I've had is it's a lot to expect a Christian to give up their belief simply because the culture is changing. I mean, if we're really fair about that, we believe very deeply in the sanctity of human life. It's not that we want to deprive somebody of a decision, but we just think at the core that that's, that's an immoral thing for a culture not to embrace life. And we know people are going to disagree with that. But to capitulate on that, I think we give up something very important in our soul. I, I would just add, I mean, I think in humility, we have to listen to the world. And it's, um, there's so much we can learn from one another. Uh, like I said earlier, we, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, uh, Hindu, atheist, whatever. We're all human beings, and there's so much we can learn from one another. If we have a spirit of openness, a spirit of, of teachability, a sense that others can teach us something. That's a lot of what we do in our Q gatherings. We invite people like Imam Faisal and uh, so many others who are not Christians, but who are experts in certain categories of the world to say, look, educate us. We, Christians don't have a corner on the market of how this world operates. I know sometimes we might act like that or talk like that, but we really don't. And there's a lot that we can learn from one another. And I think, uh, so to, the, to that point, I think we have to listen, but I would agree wholeheartedly with Jim on the theological points. You know, it's fascinating, Gabe. You think about it, and again, from a Christian perspective, you think of the characteristics of God. One of the core characteristics of God is humility. I mean, just stop and think about that when you're drinking coffee in the morning for 30 minutes. I mean, just think that one of the core characteristics of God is humility. 
That, that to me is profound. And for us to be able to embrace that and do a better job of, it, of being an example of that, yeah. I think Gabe's right on the mark. Well, I mean, I think in our generation, we will definitely see America look so much different than it did 50 years ago. We're already experiencing that. And I think along with that, we're finding tons of congregations, at least the, the, the ones who are operating in our urban centers, who are living amongst those who are diverse, their population actually reflects that. It's, it's not an all-white kind of congregation. It's congregations made up of of multiple uh, people from multiple places, especially New York City, you know, as a city, uh, the churches really do reflect the way the city looks. And I think I'm finding that in Denver, I'm finding it in L.A., we're finding that all over the place. And, and also churches actually having dedicated ministries to those who speak different languages. I think that's going to be um, part of this. In terms of how it changes the face of Christianity, I don't know. I can't predict the future. I know there's leaders like Sammy Rodriguez, mm-hmm. uh, who's doing a great job um, developing coalitions and helping Say some more about him. Yeah, Sammy Rodriguez. He's, uh, he leads a uh, Hispanic movement that's really bringing voice to the needs of evangelicals. Um, it's about 30,000 uh, Latino churches. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a big movement. He prayed, I think, uh, one evening at the Republican National Convention. But, he, but he's a young leader um, who cares about the interests, who's weighing in on the issues of immigration and how the church should respond. Uh, and I think I think we're going to see more and more and more of that from multiple communities. Um, but I think in general, there's a real openness and an understanding that look, evangelicalism again or, or Christianity isn't this white thing. It shouldn't be a white thing. I think I think uh, the things I wrestle with more are in Western culture. How will the Christian faith show up? And and those cultures aren't going to be non-white only. They're going to be multiple cultures, lots of mm-hmm. diversity. And if our churches aren't reflecting that, then we're going to have real problems in seeing the gospel go forward. And I think the way it could There be. is kind of an aha moment when we talk, when I speak publicly, I'll mention that you know more people went to church on Sunday in China than in the U.S. Hmm. What? America's not number one in church attendance? <laughs> Answers no, and so I think again, younger Christian leadership in the U.S. We realize that it's exciting to me. I'm thankful that we have a a growing uh, Hispanic culture because basically they're for the family, and there's a lot of parallel that we find working with Sammy Rodriguez and others. Um, you know, there are some political issues. We just need to resolve those on immigration and some other things, and uh, I'm hopeful that we can do that because I'm. I think it's a wonderful culture, and it's a, for the most part, it's family-centric, God-fearing, and I mean, that's, that's wonderful. And Jim, I, I think it, it would be important to point out here that this is a place you've stuck your neck out on the, on the issue of immigration. You've said that families being separated by deportation is, is an issue that Christians yeah. have to care about, and the fo- focus on the family has to care oh, about. Oh, we really should. I mean, the, uh, the, the thing, when I sat down with Sammy and other leadership and heard some of the stories, in this country, I mean, if a person stands in line legally to get into this country and they get their green card, their immediate family members, this is their spouse and their kids, can wait up to 10 years to get here. I've got two sons, 10 and 12. Mm. 
the, my boys would be off to college. I would miss their entire teen years. Do we not have some sympathy for that? Can we not get the lines to move so that those that have done it, that have waited and done everything appropriately, we penalize them waiting a decade for their immediate family members to get That to me is immoral. And this is one of those areas, I think, where the church, you can see a real change in this Christians deciding we're going to toe a political line and Christians saying, look, I'm actually a follower of Jesus even before I'm an American. Now, to some, that's sacrilegious to suggest. But I think in churches, they're saying, look, one of the things Jesus talks about is how we care about immigrants, how we care about the stranger, the, the stranger yeah, and how we welcome them and how we take care of them. And so I, I know a lot of churches are struggling with this because they don't want to be working against the law, but yet they feel this call to love those who are in their midst who need help. And so that's the kind of wrestling I'm not sure would have existed 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Here are the weaknesses of the American evangelical movement. What are the strengths? No, I appreciate that. I think, you know, we at Focus on the Family, we see that. Um, for example, we know divorce happens. Yeah. I was with a Supreme Court justice, uh, not one that you would probably associate <laughs> with Focus on the Family. But we were talking about poverty. And, you know, one of the things that often people will say in defense of <laughs> or attacking a Christian organization, if they don't fight poverty, isn't that a core Christian ethos? Isn't that the thing you should be doing? like World Vision. And I'm glad that some Christian organizations have that charter to fight poverty. Probably right here in Minneapolis you have many organizations that do that. But I said to the Supreme Court Justice, I said, do you know the interesting thing for focus? Um, the number one predictor of poverty is divorce. A woman and her children will fall below the poverty line after divorce. And so in essence, at focus, as we try to keep families together, we're fighting the number one contributor to poverty. And I'll never forget, he sat back and said, I'd never thought of it that way. And that's important. Family is important. And I I guess it breaks my heart that we've kind of uh, accepted the fragmentation of family, that it's passe. But I think it's it's core to the culture. I go around the world. I've been in South Africa, the Chinese government, governments around the world, uh, except for Western governments, will say to me, left, right, and center, if you're here to help families, we'll help you because family is the building block of the culture. I say, can you pick the phone up and call our government? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is. And we've got to uh, do all we can to maintain healthy family structure because it's what will stabilize the culture. And social science is right there in agreement with that. So I, that's where you find common grace, common ground, where you can work together to that end. Um, yeah, other positives, I mean, I would just say and add to that compassion, clearly, which aligns with that. But especially the next generation, a real sense of volunteerism, desire to not just talk about faith, but to roll up their sleeves and go to work on it in their communities. Um, maybe they'd get criticized in some cases for not being as evangelistic, so maybe not proclaiming why they're doing it or asking a bunch of people to commit to Christ as they're doing it, but they've, been, they've moved beyond that to just say, look, part of what I have to do is make sure my actions show what I believe versus just my words. Um, I would say, you know, Christians, you know, are the, are the, some of the most generous people in terms of giving and giving when our country's in calamity and crisis, local churches are some of the biggest supporters when we find tornado victims. Um, you know, I, I think of, uh, Tad Agoglia who, who runs something called first response motivated by his faith. 
And he's the first to show up after a tornado with all the heavy equipment going into that community, working to get people's lights and power back on, but then working to make sure they have water. I mean, on and on, I think these are some of the stories over the last decade we're seeing is Christians tend to be um, some of the first to show up with their wallet and with their time when our communities are in crisis. And That's I hope over the next decade that continues in our economic situation um, as, as the church probably becomes even more critical to trying to supply for those who need it. I believe that was true in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina as well. It was the Christians who were there and who stayed. Exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've talked about politics not being the dominant thrust of your organizations and their efforts. But when you do think about politics, are there ways in which the political involvement goes beyond party and, and, and the, the, part, the partisan uh, polarization? For instance, uh, the evangelical I'll give you one example, and then uh, one for me was the White House. Uh, President Obama invited uh, me to come and talk about the issue of fatherlessness. He held a a uh, town hall meeting, basically, and I had to really think about that because you you know, okay, does this does this uh, kind of provide fodder, political fodder? But you know, I came down to the conclusion that with this president, he didn't have a dad just like me. And he has a concern about fatherlessness. And if I can't go to that meeting and participate, I lack integrity. That's the bottom line. And, of course, we're going to have vastly different views on most policy issues. But if this president wants to say this is a problem in our culture, the absence of fathers in the home, I can only say you're absolutely right. What can we do to improve that? So that was an example where I think that collaboration occurred. Um, I, I do think on the taxation issue, the church, it's interesting, because I think the church, when we tax and redistribute wealth for the purpose of taking care of the poor, the church always saw that as its kind of its responsibility. Um, and I don't think it did a very good job taking care of the poor, unfortunately, especially in these most recent years. So, but I, I would think that we need to rethink that. A lot of state budgets are, are going bankrupt. We had a situation in Colorado where the uh, school lunch program was running out of money. And it actually was humorous because uh, Gary and I talked about it and we thought, well, the budget wasn't huge to finish the year. It was like $160,000. I said, let's cover it. It created turmoil in the state capital because we, we can't let folks politically do charged. That. And so the Republicans said, hey, why not? Private sector probably could do something. And the Democrats in the State House said, no, 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 we don't want religious or nonprofit organizations doing that, which is unfortunate because, like, orphan and foster care 80 years ago was taken care of by the church with all its mess. I get that. Uh, but the state took that over about 80 years ago, and guess what? There's a lot of mess. Um, so I think, I think as, as states become more strapped for, for dollars, it's a great opportunity for the church to, to once again uh, draw close to its core call and do some of these things. Yeah, and I found uh, we just did our most recent Q gathering in Washington kind of, kind of for the point of saying, look, we, we need to realize that the way we get along isn't by being just one party or the other but through relationships. And so we had multiple presenters that represented 
different views participate in our gathering and share with us their points of view and lots of conversations happening all over D.C. from the State Department to the White House, on and on, where Christians were saying, I want to roll up our sleeves and get engaged in the issues I care about, whether that's the environment and getting better educated on that or, or a movement like human trafficking, where the Christian church has been behind that for, for the last seven years, really, driving that, and it's become such a forefront social issue. Um, it does remind me of what the church ought to be like. Not, not that we're trying to represent one party or the other or be seen as a voting block that can be won by one party or the other. But I'm encouraged that today evangelicals aren't seen that way. I mean, I would say in the last two elections, you've seen that completely change. Mm-hmm. The evangelicals, you know, we don't even have a candidate in the race right now. So it's not, it's not something that's just going to be won that There's easily. There's hardly a Protestant in the race. Yeah. <laughs> there actually is one. There's one. It's President Obama. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, uh, just to add to what Gabe has said there, the, the uh, interesting thing with this is, is for the church, there's two terms in the church lexicon. One is orthodoxy the truth of God's word, and then orthopraxy, the doing of the word. And I think one of the problems we're facing now is that for many years, and it's, it's really played out in the political arena, the drive for orthodoxy. We need to maintain orthodoxy. And I think we have lost our way, and I'm so excited about Gabe and the younger generation because I think what God is doing through them and the vision and the heart and the passion is to revive orthopraxy, the doing of the word. And, uh, you know, orthodoxy should be the foundation of the building. You don't really see it. You know it's there, and you're glad it's there because it keeps the building up. But the building is actually the orthopraxy, the things that we've talked about, uh, taking care of the poor, being engaged, talking life, talking about the right things, and doing the right things. Hmm. Maybe just one more question. (laughs) Hard choice. Can I ask two quick questions? Yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, both personal Yeah, I think people would assume that, that, uh, that there would be bigger issues. There really aren't. I think if we lead, I mean collectively, not just focus on the family, but if leadership leads in this area, uh, people hear it. And they really shouldn't follow just because somebody's saying it. What I want to root it in is the gospel and what's there in the New Testament. So what I'm saying, and when people challenge me about it, I'll say, let's just go to this book. <laughs> Let's read it. And uh, you, sh- you certainly shouldn't take my word for it, but what does God say about how we treat people? Oh, with gentleness, with kindness, um, hoping that some might embrace God. I mean, that's the call. And I think, I think uh, you know, I think too often we're so about the victory, and I love what Tim Keller wrote in his book, Counterfeit God, that the church leadership, we've become so much about winning and so much about the victory that the world, uh, we become the predator and the world our prey. Hmm. Wow, that buckled my knees. That is not the heart of God. Have you been invited back to Liberty University or Thomas Road Baptist Church? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's well, a good question. Listen, I mean, I, I, uh, I have not. Um, <laughs> But I don't, I don't read into that, honestly. My, my family's there, so I actually have gone back. I've been at church. I've, I've participated at Thomas Road. Um, I'm great friends with leadership there and people who are leaders at Liberty University and respect so much 
how much that university's grown and, and what they're doing. So, no, there's great relationships there. Um, maybe it's just that I'm not a good speaker. I mean, have you ever thought of that? <laughs> uh, very diplomatic answer. <laughs> That's good. I want to close by um, circling back to the word fear. I think, Jim, you used that word early on. Because it's so, it's so clear when we can be clear-eyed and calm about these things that behind... Um, our attacks on each other, you know, that, that fear looks like anger and fear looks like violence. Um, and you talked about a lot of Christians being fearful and not just not necessarily even fearful. There are a lot of specific things to be fearful about. And then there's the fact that we live in this moment of huge change. I mean, if you took technology alone, but it's bigger than that. And as human beings, one of the things we're learning from science, we are change is stressful. And it, it, it sends us back to our lizard brains, right? <laughs> right. So, so there's some aspect of all of this incivility, which is not a big enough word for what we're talking about, um, that is just about being human. And I wonder if you, the two of you, would think about people in this room, people who are listening. You know, what can anybody here doing to, to calm that fear of people who are different from them um, and so make new relationships, you know, make kindness more possible on both sides? Mm. Well, I, I think it starts with addressing the fear and trying to understand in our own life, where is that fear coming from? What am I really afraid of? Um, and, and likely what you're afraid of doesn't exist in just another person. It's some idea. It's some imagination you've been taught. It's some way you're seeing the world that's driving this anxiety about what could happen or, or why somebody disagrees with you and why that's so bad for the world. Um, and we have to work through that and then decide to engage with people. And, I, and I, the, to me, a first step is engaging with somebody who you think you disagree with or who you, you maybe like but maybe you've never had a conversation with because you think you guys just don't get along or they look different than you or you've prejudged them um, in, in some ways that I used to do when I was a Christian who thought anybody who looked different than me was, was, was not uh, believing the right things. And I think when we reach out and just start to engage and have conversations with people, we find on the human level people want community, especially in this technology um, saturated world, uh, people want eye to eye contact, human to human relationship, and I think that's one of the call as Christians. I mean, we we have a we have a story that's essentially the story that we believe is God sends Jesus to be fully embodied, embodied in a yeah. human culture um, to to give people a new experience that was very different than what they had seen the religious leaders represent to them, um, and and Jesus has to come fully embodied to do that, and that our call today, one of the most countercultural things we can do, but refreshing things we can do, is to be fully present, fully embodied with other human beings and, and listen to them, look them in the eyes, ask them how they're doing, um, have these conversations, not with just strangers, but with your parents, with your children, with your spouse. Um, we need it, and it's something desperately missing in our society. And if we don't work on that, being human, having conversations, I think, I think 10 to 20 years from now we're going to see incredible suffering in our world mm-hmm. as a result. I would only add, you know, the scripture is pretty clear. The, the Lord says, I do not give you a spirit of fear. It's pretty straightforward. And for us to run around fearful is the antithesis of what God's character is. So it's very easy for me in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, long suffering. Then you look at the other part of Galatians, the ugly fruit, jealousy, strife, envy, anger. 
um, if you're seeing that fruit, you're not seeing God's heart. And so it doesn't mean we live that perfectly. I think sometimes the non-Christian community, if, if we become human <laughs> and we can't live perfectly, they point that out. So you're a hypocrite. Well, no, you, you, we're not Jesus. <laughs> you can't live it perfectly every day. And my point there is simply to say that that's common grace. We are striving to do these things, to live by the Spirit of God. Um, sometimes we fall short, and we need to be accountable to each other in that context. Um, but I'd rather live with the fruit of the Spirit than with the bad fruit. Hmm. You know, I didn't set this up as a... It, it, it's not like the two of you are on opposing sides of something, but you represent nuance and diversity within within a large sector. So I wonder um, if you could just say a little bit in closing about you know what you've learned from each other. <laughs> well, uh, Gabe, <laughs> <laughs> well I'll go first because it'll be easier. No, I think again what I what I see in Gabe and Lou Giglio and Brad Lominek and others that have really gone out on a limb. They they have led the way. And it's important for older Christians at 51 <laughs> you are not to, old to say, you know, that's great. I'm learning a lot from them in terms of that orthopraxy, courage to line themselves up with scripture and go for it and take the knives both in the back and in the chest, both from those that oppose you and your friends. <laughs> and and I've seen that with Gabe, you know, when he he's talking to religious leaders. And uh, it's refreshing. And I think when people, when Christian leaders, the older Christian leadership says, where are those future leaders? They're just not there. Because they want gladiators. They want culture warriors. And the amazing thing is, I think God is answering their question, and they don't even see it. That's very kind of you, Jim. And and I think what I've learned from, uh, from Jim is the courage it takes to stay with an institution that uh, he could never talk about it like this, but but in my opinion, focus on the family did represent so much of of what was wrong with with Christian life in American culture. It, brand wise, I think we we all recognize the brand that it had, as you read, you know, kind of this religious right um, powerhouse. And uh, for Jim to be able to go into that environment and be faithful and and to in an institution, not just go start something new. It's easy for me. I went and just started something new. And started something that could embody what I thought to be true, that could, that could, could live in its, in its own life. But, but Jim went in and has been a part of reforming really an institution, uh, which is a much harder thing to do, and has stuck with it, I know, through, through probably really tough conversations and, and, and people who, would, who, who have probably left supporting Focus on the Family or have, have given up on where Focus is because it's not carrying that gladiator mindset, but they're actually getting back to what the big critique was, if, if you recall, over the last a decade ago, is why don't you just focus on your own DAMN family, right? This was the It was a bumper claim, sticker. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was. And I feel like that's what... I think John Weiss did that bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. That's true. And I feel like <laughs> Jim uh, Jim has done that, and he's doing that, and it's it, and it's giving focus on the family in, in many ways a new life and a new generation that's moved beyond its founder, which is a very difficult thing for any organization to do. And he's doing that, so it, it gives me great hope that institutions can continue to grow, continue to transform with the times, with with uh, with the moment. 
Um, and, and we need focus on the family. Uh, I know in my own family, my kids listen to Adventures in Odyssey, this resource that Focus on the Family has put out for years, helping children understand character qualities and values. I mean, these are the kind of things that families need, and they might not want to admit it, but anybody who's a parent and has kids and they're trying to figure this out knows they need these kind of resources. So it's a big gift, um, not just to the body of Christ and to the church, but I think to our culture at large. Mm. Well, I think this is a fine beginning to this Civil Conversations Project. And I want to thank all of you for coming and everybody out there listening. And so much gratitude to Jim Daly and Gabe Lyons. Well, thank you, thank Chris. You. Thank you, Chris. Yeah.